Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined with Bay Pigors, and she's the owner and founder of uh, Free to Be uh, Wild Sanctuary. Uh, so we're very happy to have her. Welcome to the podcast, Bay. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, so um, uh, you're the first uh, you know, individual that we've had on uh, sort of in the sanctuary uh, rehabilitation center, uh, sort of world. So, uh, do you want to sort of give an overview of your background and sort of how you started in this field? Sure. No problem. So basically I grew up in Zimbabwe. I was at school here, raised here, born here, and I left for a few years after schooling. I went to further my studies and was always kind of like into wildlife, but never really knew how to get into the industry. And I always had this like, like affiliation with rescuing animals. And I mean, my whole life as a child, I always had babies in the backyard that I'd rescued or people had like found on the side of the road. So I really grew up with that inside my soul. And when I left school, I was always looking for an in of how to get into working with wildlife. And veterinary at that time, unfortunately, wasn't an option for me and it seemed that that was kind of the only way that I could really work with wildlife so I pursued a few other aspects in life and went down a few other roads that I thought might be of interest to me and somehow I was always just drawn back to Zimbabwe and I always found myself in a wildlife kind of environment and in 2013 I took over the care of a baby baboon whose mother had been shot and I just knew it was my calling and I just knew from the the guilt of that persecution which is a huge problem in Zimbabwe I kind of made it a promise to this little baboon that I was going to get her back to freedom not thinking that it was going to snowball into me opening and owning a wildlife sanctuary but more so finding one for her to go to where she would be able to be released and yeah it kind of just grew from there from that promise and that little bit of passion for that one baboon when I started doing more research and realizing that there was really a need for it in Zimbabwe as there was no places that were specializing in primate rescue and rehabilitation and going outside of Zimbabwe to various other countries that specialized in primate release, I soon realized that possibly taking this baboon to another country, into another sanctuary was never going to be an option due to permits. And I got the inspiration lady who owns a, a primate sanctuary in South Africa and she just said to me you've got so much passion and you've got so much drive for one baboon and if it's something that Zimbabwe needs I think you are the person to start a primate sanctuary and that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, that's that's in that's a great story. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that I think everybody deals with and people can empathize with in the zoo community, especially with dealing with permitting and go animals going in between countries. It's it's definitely uh, very very challenging, and that's uh, yeah, a pretty amazing story. Is there you know a specific situation that sort of brings most? animals to your sanctuary? Uh, is there a sort of common thread with a lot of them? 
So as I mentioned earlier, persecution of primates is a huge um, reason why we get a lot of our orphans. And unfortunately, for decades, that has been the method of dealing with problem animals. Primates are classed as vermin and problematic animals in Zimbabwe and Southern Africa as, as basically a whole because of the conflict that they cause with humans and coming into those environments, such as raiding crops and houses. I mean, they're opportunistic, so they'll take any opportunity opportunity for a few uh, a free meal so that kind of causes a huge like massive conflict in this coexistence between the, the two species of humans and primates and like I said decades of, of practices has been persecution there's been no real education on other ways to learn to coexist with these animals so that's one of the huge huge factors of us getting orphans is their mothers being shot on farms raiding houses raiding villages and things like that alongside poaching that's another really big one but I would say persecution is probably the, the biggest one yeah definitely yeah um is there uh can you sort of give the listeners an overview of, you know, the individuals under your care currently or like how many different species you have? Or I know you said you focus mainly on primates. Do you have other species as well or? So, yeah, with primates are obviously our specialty, but we do have a huge amount of other species that have come in. And when the sanctuary started, I started with just primates. And then there was actually a need for other species that needed to be rehabilitated and released. And because we are strictly a rehabilitation and release center, there was no way I was ever going to say no to an animal in need. And it's actually worked out um, like hugely beneficial because a lot of the other species that we deal with are a lot easier to rehabilitate and a lot easier to release, which has give, uh, built us up credibility to prove that our intentions are rehabilitation and release. Um, so yeah, we've got a, a vast amount of animals. I would say probably 20 different various species at the moment, up to just off the top of my head, close to 90 different animals in the sanctuary at this current moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so you mentioned, you know, a challenging species and, and uh, you know, easier species to rehabilitate. Is there specific ones that come to mind that are very challenging to rehabilitate and ones that are, you know, maybe a little bit easier? So I would say primates are probably the most difficult because it's a long term rehabilitation and rewilding process. So those would probably be my most difficult at the moment that I, I've experienced. And I'd say the easier species are a lot of the lesser species uh, or the lesser known species should I say, such as like your small antelope, your animals like hedgehogs, certain birds of prey are easy. Um, so yeah, those kind of animals, they, their rehabilitation and release rate from the time that they get to the sanctuary to the time that we're able to rewild them and put them through the different rehabilitation phases is a lot quicker and a lot easier than primates. Okay. Yeah. And, and you say like rewilding in these different sort of phases, what does that usually look like and what sort of time scales are you usually operating under? So what we try to do when we, so for example, I'm going to use like an antelope species to start with. So what we try to do is we try to mimic what would be natural <laughs> in so, for example, if we get a reed buck in, we've got one at the moment, super cute one. Um, we will then research that species, research what's natural. So, for example, how long will that animal stay with its mother? 
how long will it drink milk for? What is the process after that? When does the mother push it away? Does another male come in? Do they stay together for safety purposes for a couple of months or years? And what we then try to do is we model our rewilding process on what is natural for that an animal and then we kind of mimic that in a sense of a way so the first initial stages will be the hand raising the bottle feeding that kind of phase and then from there the weaning phase and then whatever is natural for that animal for example if it would then be pushed away from its mother we would then mimic a semi-wild environment where it would then be on its own learning to forage and eat naturally and then from there move it on to say a bigger a bigger wild area with maybe introduction to certain predators that it would like need to be exposed to to in order for us to then move it on to like I said the, the last phase which will probably be its final release side so each one is is completely different and specific to each species that then right yeah is there a sort of checklist that you have or like is there specific things you're looking for to determine if an animal is releasable or so one thing that i've learned is that wild animals are incredible incredible their their ability to adapt to a natural like environment even with certain ailments is just incredible and i think us as humans make huge excuses for them i think we we really keep animals for the benefit of people and that's one of the lines that i've been very specific that i've never really wanted to cross or, or even get close to so a lot of the time i would say a huge vast number of animals are able to be released because their natural instincts are incredible and what we've found is we've done quite a bit of research and studying into what happens when you provide a certain animal with its natural environment and we have found that given the right environment and the right circumstances they always choose wild they always choose to be what they naturally meant to be so unless there's absolutely like obvious things so for example we've got a vulture that's got one wing it had to be amputated so there's no ways he would ever be a candidate but we really do push for release um so every animal that comes in we will just look at every possible way that we could get them back into a wild life and in order to do that what we do is we t specifically tailor make our releases so for example we get a huge amount of imprinted animals so people find baby animals, they raise them, they look after them, and after a couple of years when they become problems, they come to us. And I have this theory, like, I really don't like cages. And I know that, of course, in some circumstances they're necessary. And of course, we've got certain animals that have to be kept in cages for, for obvious reasons. But for me, like, my dream is just to never see a cage or an animal in a cage. It just, yeah, it's one of my absolute things that I, I really try to avoid. So, for example, those kind of imprinted animals, what we then do is we will tailor make a specific release site to suit that animal. So, for example, if it's got a problem and it's, it's imprinted on people, we will find a release site where it can still live a natural life, but it's we're eliminating that aspect where it will come into contact with people. So it takes a lot of time and effort. But um, what it does is it provides a release plan for animals that we would ultimately make an excuse for and be like, oh, well, they're a problem because they imprinted, so we can't release them. Let's just keep them forever. So we go through a huge amount of effort, resources, and collaboration with people to try and make like leeway for these kind of animals that in the other kind of world would be kept in captivity. Right, right. So it's more of like a like quote unquote like soft release as far and they're sort of 
in an area that you could still like monitor them, but they're not, you know, completely on their on their own. Exactly. What you want to do when you're releasing an animal is you want to set them up for success. You don't want any kind of environment where it's going to fail because basically they've already lost certain certain skills in the beginning of their lives that would give them that head start for survival. So what you want to do is when you are releasing them or putting them into a soft release or rehabilitation program is you want to set them up for success. You want to provide the best environment for them where they are safe and they are secure, but they get to be what they're meant to be, which is wild animals. So we use a lot of predator free release sites, which are privately owned pieces of land, farms, where there's no predators on them the animals can be monitored and there's also no chance of them coming into conflict with people so like no villages no just normal uh, like say footways where people coming through farms things like that so we do a lot of research into finding those kind of release sites and like I said earlier collaborating with the owners of those those places and educating them on the importance of allowing these animals to be in that environment living naturally but like you said earlier still able to monitor them to a certain extent yeah yeah that's that's really interesting you mentioned uh like you know imprinting and that's definitely something that that uh, you know i've heard being a, a major problem within sanctuaries is sort of mitigating that uh you know these animals need to be cared for by humans to go into the wild but you know they're still eventually you want them to go in the wild and not really be seeking out humans like how, how do you how do you sort of mitigate that do you have steps that you take to sort of like wean them off of people yeah so that's a really big challenge that we've come across and it's like one of the, the biggest social media wars that we've that we've really encountered as well is the idea that you run a sanctuary and you're rehabilitating you're rewilding these animals and then people will say oh but how can you be touching them and how can you be holding them and that's not natural but like you said the reality is you're hand raising these these animals and you have to have a certain amount of contact so we do have policies in place we do have um certain times that we'll have contact with the animals will have certain phases in their rehabilitation where it'll grow from minimal contact to no contact to complete wild environment. So, and also it also varies to do with species again, because a lot of the times some animals are social animals and they need contact. Otherwise they start forming atypical behaviors mm -hmm. and then that them up for, for failure when you, when you want to release them. So it's such a fine line. And again, I think it's about, it, like learning individual species and what works for those species and also boils down to what I said earlier when if you give them a natural wild environment they will basically always choose that environment so uh, that reverts back to what you said as well in soft releases like soft releases are one of our most successful methods that we use and some I mean some animals come back but I find it more food related than human related it's more the fact that they see us as a food source than actually oh we want to cuddle with a human they don't see us as humans at all I don't think um so yeah, some animals take longer. We, we've had a bush baby that we've recently rehabilitated and he's taken maybe 11 months to actually leave his soft release enclosure and go out with his girlfriend. And I think it's his girlfriend that kicked him out of home because he kept getting 
back every time someone walked past because she's obviously completely wild. And now he's completely moved out of home. But I mean, that took 11 months. Another circumstance, I had a warthog that we had been raising and we had him for about three years. And it was actually before I started the sanctuary. And when I started the sanctuary, I put him into a rewilding and release program. And when I took him out to the release site, within three days, he had found a natural burrow. He had moved off he would come like within 10 yards of us but not come back to us and i mean this was a completely hand-raised warthog that slept in my bed um at a time where i didn't know any better because i wasn't owning running a wildlife sanctuary but like that was my biggest example and my biggest inspiration going into this this world is that give them the natural environment and their natural instincts kick in so like pave the way for them for success and have pro like protocols in place and have hands-on contact hands-off contact but also be be smart in your research as to what suits certain and specific species yeah absolutely and and i sort of that that sort of ties into my next question with enrichment because that's something that comes up a lot with you know that, that i get asked all the time with sanctuaries and with rehab centers is is you know providing the animal with enrichment to get it to sort of display these natural behaviors that they're going to need for the wild, uh, but also, you know, not, not realize, not getting them used to the fact that, you know, people are giving them enrichment or, and, and stuff like that. So do you have any sort of advice for people that are looking to deliver like effective enrichment, but also are, you know, dealing with those sort of confounding factors like that? It's, it's really difficult. And I think every sanctuary is different of how they're going to handle that depending on their methods that they use for rehabilitation processes and releases. So for us, uh, for example, with our baboons, we use a huge amount of natural enrichment. So our baboons go on a bushwalk every single day and they go out for quite a few hours. They'll probably go out about 8.30 in the morning and they'll come back just after lunchtime. So that's a good four or five hours every single day where they, they're using their natural instincts for enrichment purposes, but they are guided with a handler every single day. So there's that human element in it. And I mean, it's really fascinating. We, we're undergoing quite a bit of research in it because it's really fascinating to see the the, like when they go on the bushwalks, how much time do they actually associate with the handler and how much time are they actually doing natural behaviors and which one is more beneficial? Like, are they more natural or are they veering towards people? And we've realized that they're actually more natural, which is why we've continued with that method because that was one of our concerns as well. I mean, you're going on a bushwalk, you constantly providing that, that human thing, but yeah, you know, it's really just a, a fine line between it because it's quite difficult. I would say like some of the things that we try to do is we don't have a strict routine with it as well. So we try to change it up so that mentally the animals are not associating us with the enrichment. They don't know when it's coming. They don't know what's coming and changing up the enrichment as well is really important because suddenly they, their mind is triggered more on that than the association with the person. So I would say, yeah, for some advice for sanctuaries is, is, like mix it up as much as you can do it, diversify it, do it differently, do it at night. A lot of the times that what we'll do as well as when the baboons are actually out of their semi-wild enclosures, we will use that time to go in and set up certain enrichment projects for them, smell enrichment, all those kind of things. So yeah, just, you've got to be creative. Um, it takes a lot of time and effort. It's a huge program in itself. So yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And and do the sort of the enrichment that you're giving the animals, does that change throughout their sort of rehabilitation process? Like as they're becoming, you know, more uh, closer to being released, like are you switching to more like natural based enrichment or uh, like live feeds or how are you how does that sort of change? Yeah, it definitely progresses with with their progression through the rehabilitation phases. So one of the things that we've just started now is we've got a troop of baboons that are going for release pretty soon, which is quite heartbreaking and extremely exciting at the same time. And what we've started, it's, it's this amazing thing. And so they live in semi-wild enclosures and we have started collecting manure from horses and also our zebra and various other animals um, that that roam the sanctuary and what we've done is we started dispersing this manure into their enclosures and obviously the rainy season has come and it's just been the most incredible enrichment project that we've seen it like excites me like i didn't think poo could excite me but it really does (laughs) (laughs) so the fact is like manure obviously has attracted all sorts of bugs and insects and it's allowed for new little shoots to go through and we've really watched these primates for hours hours on end digging through this this manure and i mean it's huge like it's dispersed everywhere and it's really it's one of the more natural um ways that we've got them foraging and spending their time and digging up and things like that whereas like so the younger the younger babies that we've got in the nursery at the moment what we are doing in that same um element of, of what we're needing them to do to display natural behaviors is we use seeds and nuts which obviously is not natural it's as natural to close foods that they would eat but dispersing those they're not gonna like walk along in the bush and find five kgs of sunflower seeds so yeah, yeah does does change and we're still learning and we're still looking at new methods and finding new methods but i would say it is important to try and keep up if you're doing a rewilding process keep your enrichment going on that same trajectory try and keep it as natural and as normal as possible yeah no that's that's super interesting uh so so you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about uh you know like the sort of conflict between animals and humans uh, particularly around like farming and stuff like that i think that's a problem you know uh in a lot of different countries even in you know canada where i am that's a that's a problem with certain species is there a sort of problem that is specific to zimbabwe that you think that a lot of people listening might not know about or is sort of a, a unique problem that sort of results in animals coming to your sanctuary anything that you'd want to sort of draw people's attention to I think it would be that I don't, they, there's certain species of animals that are a problem in Zimbabwe. So primates are one of them. Hyena are another. Jackal are another one. Um, those leopard, but not hugely leopard, um, they because they're so discreet and they're quiet. But I would say those four species are probably the top problematic animals in Zimbabwe that people face problems with because of obviously human encroachment on their land and the farming and the crops. A lot of these people's livelihoods are say one field of crop and I mean a troop of baboon that moves in they will destroy their whole year's worth of income in I mean a matter of an afternoon so yeah. that is a 
problem that, that we display. And one of the projects that we've actually projected for 2023 for Free to Be Wild is implementing these coexistent methods other than persecution because a lot of them are really cruel. So shooting these animals, it's because they are problematic, it's been allowed for so long, so it's normal. It's classed as a normal act. So if you hear of a farmer shooting a, a baboon or monkey, no one really flinches or, or raises an eyebrow because we've grown up in that environment. It's been the only method. And I mean, catching hyenas and snare traps, torturing them, um, things like that. It's really horrific. We've had some some awful cases. And it's really, it's hard. It's a fine line as well, because you understand where the farmer's coming from. That's his livelihood, and he can't feed his children if he loses yeah. that. Where the animals are coming from so i'd say there's there's a handful of species that really do suffer in zimbabwe um because of that conflict yeah no absolutely and what, what sort of other methods like have you proposed or had success with or can you give people a sort of an idea of what those might look like so we are actually in the process of trying some of those. We've got a partner in Harare, which is the capital of Zimbabwe, and they are starting a farm. Well, they, they, they've got a farm and they, they're starting farming methods. And we are practicing the 10% method, which is whatever their crop is, investing 10% more to see that if that covers the damages of, obviously this is also specific to areas, but like with them, with the, the survey of how many baboons and monkeys on the area, they've worked out that if they could plant 10% more, that would cover the expense of what the baboons and, and monkeys come in and destroy. Another method is set up feeding stations. So if you've got a farm and you set up a specific feeding station where you could go once every couple of days or once a day, whatever you've got available that's of waste and cannot be used for human consumption, but still edible for primates and dump it at that feeding station to try and divert the attention away from the food available for the primates to still have something to eat, but stop them coming into the crops. There's that method. And then there's your, there's your general chasing and, and distracting and uh, scarecrows and bells and clanging of pots and things like that. But unfortunately, these animals are incredibly intelligent. So things like that, they're not really sustainable. They, they last for a short amount of time. So, yeah, we are still looking at what works. And, of course, every region is completely different because every region faces different problems. So we're still in the in the research phases of what's going to work. And this new, like I said, this, this with these partners that we're working on, this 10 method if that works then that could be a really good community project because i mean if you could provide farmers with 10 percent extra seed to try and sustain that or 20 percent whatever they problems they're facing with that could be a really really cool project and a game changer for a lot of things because unfortunately with persecution it's also not sustainable temporarily it is but animals just move straight back into that slot that's opened up where unfortunately that animal's been killed yeah, no, absolutely. And and there's species that even uh, will compensate their population based on the fact that they're being killed, like coyotes here do that. You know, if farmers start killing coyotes, then coyotes actually start, you know, reproducing with more coyotes. And it's yeah, it's definitely uh, not a sustainable a sustainable practice. Uh, so so these are some great initiatives that you've mentioned. And, uh, you know, how can people get involved and what does sort of involvement look like uh, with your with your sanctuary? So we run a volunteer program, which yeah, it's been running for about three years now, and it's it's a really awesome project. It's small, um, it's not a huge thing. We we take 
minimum four, five, six volunteers at a time, not more than that, because it's quite a hectic project. It's quite a hands-on project. You're working hard, you're doing a lot, but there's a certain personal aspect to it. So we try to keep it small. Um, and so yeah, people can volunteer. We don't have a minimum stay because a lot of people can't always come for long periods of time due to work constraints and things. So we have people that come over the weekend. And as the sanctuary's already got a schedule of how it runs, uh, when you're coming in as a volunteer, you just literally slot into that schedule and you are a part of our family. And whatever we're doing, you get to be a part of. So volunteering is one way to get involved. We have got uh, what we call Guardians of the Wild, which is an adoption program. So you can symbolically adopt some of the animals that we've got at the sanctuary. And the funding for that goes towards that animal's rehabilitation. Or if it's a permanent resident, it's life at the sanctuary and all the things that we do to create a happy environment and a natural environment for those animals um sponsorship is always great as well as just like our social media sharing like the work that we do and just educating people on our organization and what we're up to yeah no that's great and you guys do have an awesome social media and i'll link all of those things um in the show notes, uh, is there anything? Is there anywhere that uh, you know people can see what you're up to? Uh, any specific resources you want people to look at uh, that I will add also to the show notes? No, I think like our Instagram is pretty much our most active platform at the moment. Uh, we're doing a website revamp. So this next couple of months that will be revamped and that'll be really cool. And we're hoping to add a lot more onto that, a lot more resources, a lot more things that we're involved with, community projects. So I think between Instagram and probably the website will be the coolest yeah, places for people to see what we're up to and keep up to date. Yeah, that's awesome. And and again, I'll link those in the, in the show notes, but uh uh, yeah, this was great. Uh, thanks so much, Bay. We really uh, enjoyed having you on and it was really interesting to hear this sort of uh, other perspective and interesting to hear a lot of the sort of common threads in the, you know, sanctuary world versus the, you know, the zoo world and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was very interesting. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity and helping us just get our name out there and making people aware of the work that we do. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, thanks, everybody. Until next time. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.